Sound Lounge. Welcome back to the Sound Lounge podcast. Bob Harris is truly a legendary broadcaster and writer whose career has now spanned seven decades. A co-founder of Time Out magazine in the late 1960s and presenter of BBC Radio Sounds of the 70s from the beginning of that decade onwards, perhaps Bob's most iconic role came as presenter of the BBC television show The Old Grey Whistle Test. Affectionately known as Whispering Bob on account of his soothing vocal style, he's been a BBC stalwart ever since, inducted into the UK Radio Hall of Fame in 2009 and presented an OBE for services to music broadcasting in 2011. Bob recently recovered from a major health condition which forced him to take a break from presenting his BBC Radio 2 country music show. But he returned with renewed vigour, ready to enter the world of music supervision. He approached Sound Lounge to help him navigate the new terrain. To celebrate the partnership and help guide Bob through his new creative adventure, Sound Lounge organised an event series under the title An Evening with Bob, where the broadcaster could discuss the power of music and its relationship to advertising and branding with influential figures from across the industry. The series has since been interrupted by coronavirus, but we'll be releasing audio from the first four events on the podcast over the course of the next few months. Videos of the event and exclusive interviews with Ruth, Bob and all the other guests is available at the dedicated website at www.aneveningwithbob.com. Donations were being raised through the event for Nordoff Robbins, the UK's largest independent music therapy charity, which uses the power of music to enrich the lives of people with life-limiting illnesses, disabilities and feelings of isolation. More details, along with the video you'll hear played at the event, are on the website. In this first episode, focusing on strategists, Bob's conversation is with Les Bennett, Head of Effectiveness at Adam and Eve DDB, and Tara Austin, Chief Strategy Officer at Kindred. They discuss how music decisions are made by ad agencies and how they measure the impact on consumers and on the bottom line. They also talk about the things that can and do go wrong with music choices and how the effect can last when advertisers get it right. But first, Sound Lounge CEO Ruth Simmons gives some background to the event. When people talk about music, we hear so many times that music is a soundtrack of our lives. But what does that actually mean? On a superficial level, I understand it can pinpoint an era, an event, the day I got stood up, the moment I fell in love. Personally, I've always been in awe of anyone who could wake up in the morning with an idea, a phrase, a melody, a riff, and magic that into something that would express my innermost feelings that could make me cry, that could make me laugh, could make me smile, and simply reach the parts that other parts can't reach. As someone who is trained as a scientist, I've always wanted to understand this power. So when I was thinking about this introduction, I asked myself, what could I show you that would demonstrate that when there are no words, music can connect, music can heal, and music can achieve the extraordinary? Please meet Henry. another video clip, and uh, this is about Alzheimer's, and it's from a, a new documentary that's called 
alive inside. So let's watch it and then we can talk about this. Henry is one of the five million people in America with dementia. video 20 times and it still moves me every time. So to celebrate this power, we've dedicated this series of events to supporting Lord of Robbins, a charity who work tirelessly with people like Henry that have Alzheimer's, autistic children, people in comas, and people who simply cannot communicate with the outside world. Lord of Robbins 
gifted therapists are able to create lifelines through music and sound to be able to express themselves. And I'm glad and delighted that Sandy Trapper of the Head of Partnerships at Nord of Broadwinds is here tonight. is by invitation only and it's through the generosity of this, the Century Club that we are made, able to provide this amazing backdrop and create a host of event like this. In your welcome packs you'll find all about the Century Club and how to join and more importantly how to donate to this extraordinary team of music specialists at the Nordoff Robins so please find it in your hearts to give generously. You see I've been around the ad industry for a long time and, and I know they understand the power of music. The public report that it's 50% of the visual experience. And yet, too often, the final decision about music in a campaign and for a campaign is left to the very last minute. And it's often based on subjectivity of the creative team or the director at the agency, or worse, what can be cleared in time and what is left in the budget. The focus has always been on creating a campaign that will win creative awards. And brands have historically chosen their agencies by the number of creative awards they see in the, in the reception. Bizarrely, planners and, and marketers in branding who are used to researching and validating all sorts of other decisions rarely ask the target market questions beyond, do you like it? Do you remember it? They're good questions and it may be a fabulous track. But few people actually ask the question, does this music work for the brand? Does it sell product? And if not, why not? And it's often the case in large organizations that people work in silos. And it's often their decisions and, working, uh, and ways of working impact on the final results. So we at the Sound Lounge, and this has been a passion of mine for a very long time, had the idea of creating a series of events to explore how we could bring all those disparate parts of the process together. And over the next eight months, with an amazing team of experts, we would do a deep dive into just what it is in music that resonates with us. Each evening will be hosted by our own amazing Bob Harris OBE, a legend in his own lifetime, and the newest member of the Sound Lounge team. So with no more ado, as they say, I will hand you over to the brilliant and incredible Bob to take you on the beginning of this journey to begin thinking about sound in a different way. Thank you. As Ruth said, during the course of the next eight months, in fact, we're going to be exploring the impact of music on us, on our souls and on our hearts. And um, uh, I'll be introducing during this time some of the great experts of music in this country who have put music in the forefront of the way we react to music. And my two guests this evening to start this series are two amazing people. This is Les Binnett and this is Tara Austin. Now, Les is Head of Effectiveness at Adam and Eve DDB, and Tara is the Chief Strategy Officer at Kindred. Now, these kind of phrases, they're kind of new to me because uh, one of the aspects of this that I'm really looking forward to, for me, this is a huge learning curve because I've been lucky, amazingly lucky, to have music as, as the center of my life 
professionally for nearly 50 years, uh, but as a person for much, much longer than that. Um, and I remember as a child, sort of in my, when I was 10, 11 years old, at my parents' home. My parents had a cellar, Ardington Road in Northampton, and I had my dance set record player down in the cellar. I, I really was that young boy with the dance set record player, buying 45, rock and roll 45s. And we used to have um, what we used to call record hops. And I would invite my friends over and they would arrive with some of the new singles that they would have bought. I don't know, in those days, it would, really would have been the new Elvis single or the new Everly Brothers single or Do Ain't or uh, Ricky Nelson, Buddy Holly. And um, I'd put the new Buddy Holly record on, put the needle on to the vinyl and play this record <laughs> and see the expressions on their faces and the impact that these records would have on them. Either just the expression and the joy that clearly these records were bringing, or, you know, the physical reaction to them. You know, you begin to stamp your feet, you begin to move around and click your fingers, and, you know, it hits you, this music hits you. And to be part of the development of music since those early days of rock and roll, you know, I really, really do think I've been so fortunate to hear those new Elvis Presley singles when they first came out. Do you know what I mean? And uh, those little record hops that we used to have in, in my mum and dad's cellar, you know, I still think to myself nowadays that what I, I'm doing still is just a bigger version, you know, of what we were doing then. So that's my introduction to music. And Tara, you're the first time you were touched by music and the first time you were hit by a song in that kind of way? When, when would that have been? So, well, the thing is, like, I went on tour with my mother when I was still a, a babe in arms. My mum's a singer, so she had a sort of girl band at the time. Just explain who she uh, is, because I played her on my programme. Yeah, her, her name is Claire Hamill. Buy her record, please. Yes. She'll be very happy if you do, as will I. And, yeah, so she, she was a folk singer. She signed to Ireland when she was sort of 17 and met my father. And actually, we were talking about, you know, what music means to us professionally and, and personally. And I, I said, for me, in the advertising world, it's just in, it's entirely intertwined because I suppose the reason I've taken an interest in music in advertising is because my mother is a singer and my father ran a record label. So music is kind of the family business. And when I went, first got into advertising, I realised that advertising didn't didn't really understand the music industry in the way that I sort of maybe did because it was dinner time conversation. But yeah, when when did music first strike well, me? Well, it, I mean, it would have. It, gosh, it's it it just always been there. Yeah, yeah my mother is a fantastic singer and she's sung to me from day one. My dad is not such a great singer, but my um, but he tries. And so I yeah, I hadn't even thought about that question, but hearing her sing on on tour and the lullabies and. Uh, we've got a very strong Irish folk music tradition in my in my family, so I think probably, yeah, I just can't even, I can't, none of us can remember before the rhythm, right, before the heartbeat that, you know, and that's so intimately related to our biology is that our, our mother's heartbeat and, and where we get our sense of kind of rhythm and excitement is adrenaline and a fast pace because mum is excited and her heart is beating quite quickly, so I think Day one, it's a bad answer, sorry. <laughs> and, and your dad and the record label? So my dad founded uh, Beggar's Banquet along with Martin Mills and then set up a music television channel. And so, yeah, so kind of like music rights, actually, like the, the commercial side of um, music. My, my dad can't really sing, but he does know, knows how to kind of cut a record and talk. And we would often talk about 
performing rights and master rights. And that, that was it. When I joined advertising, um, I think I was telling the guys this story that um, my actually my old comfort client is in the room today. And we worked on comfort together many, 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 many years ago. No, not that many years ago, but many <laughs> years ago. And um, on, it was my induction onto the brand and my first job in advertising. And um, the head of the business, very senior man, was giving me this induction. And he told me that um, there was this particular song. It went, it went, do the moves, do the moves, let me see you, do the moves. And like you were rubbing your sleeve and it was all smelling really nice, you know, like comfort. Um, and he told me that what was really great and really clever was that they had bought the track. They'd bought all the rights to this track. They'd found, it actually sounded really sad. They'd like tracked down the last remaining member of the band and who had the rights to this song and, and they'd bought it all from him and weren't they clever? And I said, so how much money did we make? And because I knew that this, this, this ad had played out all over the world, like a lot, uh, and was still playing out. And so I said, how much, money did, how much money did we accrue from buying that? And he just looked at me completely blankly because he had no idea what I was talking about in terms of the performing rights. So, and, and my experience from then on of advertising was that music was always seen as a cost. Uh, it was an expense. It was something to sign the check and go, oh, my God, oh, we're going to have to... You know, we're going to play out in a new territory, which means we have to, to do the license again. And oh, expense, expense, expense. Um, it was never seen as an asset. There is a, I think, a real, um, yeah, there's a complete lack of understanding within our industry of, of how music can make money because it does make money. Um, and I sort of, my education paid for, <laughs> was paid for by that. So um, I know <laughs> yes. that music can make money. And, um, but yeah, in Adland, uh, you'll find that music that is written by it within advertising, music that is the lyrics, you know, none of this stuff is registered. It all goes into the PRS. None of it is ever claimed by anybody um, because the advertising industry just doesn't understand how the music industry works. Yeah. So, sorry, I'm going around well, now. We, we, yeah, we, 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 <laughs> I didn't know anyone until, until she told me two weeks ago. Yeah. We, we can explore this anyway a little bit yeah. later, Tara. But Les, then head of effectiveness, <laughs> translate that for um, us. So, I mean, earlier on you said about experts in music. I'm not an expert in music. I'm, but what I do is I measure the effects of advertising and try and understand what makes advertising work. So I've written a bit about music and doing that. Um, so trying to make advertising work better, really. I think we're going to beat you with Les is incredibly modest because, I mean, sharing a pl yeah. any kind of platform with Les as a planner, as a strategist, is frankly embarrassing because yeah, he, <laughs> he is the most <laughs> learned man in our industry, I would say in the world, along with Peter Field, um, in terms of understanding how advertising works at its best, the effectiveness... This, he wrote the papers on it, so... How much money do <laughs> <laughs> Just while you're, you're sort of setting up the new batteries, why don't we just have a look at the film, yeah. the Monty film, uh, and then we can discuss this once okay. your uh, microphone's charged up. <laughs> because this is a, a very, very... I mean, I love this ad. So if we can just see this first, and then talk with Les a little bit more after this. Seems like all I really was 
Just like little girls and boys Playing with their little toys Seems like all we really would do Was waiting for Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I just think that's such a beautiful ad. Now, how much were you involved in the choice of the music? No. For, for not I at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't get involved in um, the creation of the ad, but what I have done is write about what it did and what effect it had, and to some extent, perhaps trying to explain why these things work. So uh, I'm almost like a sort of an academic within so the industry in a you're, way. You're analysing the impact of, of, yeah. of the combination of what we see and what we hear. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, that ad is a lovely little story and it's people like it and it makes some people tingle and makes some people cry, but it also sells an awful lot of sofas. Yes. Um, <laughs> see, this is a sofa sale, by the way. Yes. And, and these are all for John Lewis. Yeah. Um, um, and um, so... Every pound they spend on that generated over £10 of extra profit for John Lewis. I mean, so that, you can actually do that yeah, math, can, do can that. you? And that's, that's the kind of thing that I do for a living, is to measure that stuff. So, so how do you measure that? By, by OK, well, it's a, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but it's... Um, I, we, and I, I do, do some of this, and there are other specialists in the industry who do this, but there's sort of mathematical techniques which allow you to relate patterns in the sales data to all the different variables that are affecting things like, you know, from the weather and the economy, prices, and the ads, and the sort of um, the promotions and things that they're doing. So you've, it, 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 it's a, a technique called econometric modelling, and that's something I do and other people in the industry do. But what you're doing is making the case for them to do it again. Yes. So I mean, when, when this yeah. stuff works, and, and I would say Adam and Eve and the work that they've done with John Lewis has really led the field in terms of establishing emotional storytelling driven by music, because yeah. that's become their kind of their, their thing, that it does work for the business and therefore other clients can look at that and go, well, I'm prepared to do that too then. That's actually what I want rather than wall-to-wall VO voiceover with no music really taking part and no and not delivering that emotional storytelling. If you can, show, if you can show a 10 to 1 payback, it's quite handy for getting <laughs> more money out of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's John, what, I mean, I mean, come yes. on. I mean, 
you know, and, so, is this a general thing? Do other people in the room sort of make that same connection? This, this is a criteria or criterion by which, you know, successful campaigns are judged. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're, anyone who works in advertising will care about the ads and will care about the craft and the artistry of it all. But, but at the end of the day, we're also selling stuff. And the people who are funding all this stuff are only doing it because, ultimately, it makes more money for their businesses. So we're both in art and in business, aren't we? Mm, um, yes. And so my job, in I suppose, in a way, is to make that link between the artistry and the and the and the cash, really. So, so is it you, you then, Les, that takes the results to John Lewis at the end of the, the day um, and, and sits down with them and analyzes and, and puts certain cases for other approaches or whatever in, in, it might well, be? Well, in, in that particular case, not so much actually, but but on on some accounts it would be. So. Um, I suppose the other thing I've done with this is to try to step beyond that analysis to try to understand why things work. And I think that's perhaps a bit more related to this evening stuff. Yes, so, so is, you know, why is it that some ads sell better than others? And I think perhaps the bit that's been most kind of unexpected in the work that I've done, it was un unexpected to me, was really understanding the importance of emotion in selling things. So you mentioned the work with Peter. So I, I work with a guy called Peter Field. And, and, and I suppose it's about 12 years ago now. We did a piece of research, a big, big, big research project, which really showed that advertising, a lot of advertising, works not by telling people things, but by making people feel things. Um, and we've tended to talk about advertising as a communications medium, like this is something, a, a way of getting a message across. And increasingly, the, what we see in the research is that, yes, yeah, some advertising does work like that, but a lot of it works by making people feel th something rather than telling them something. And that's where music comes in, I think, is that music has that power to evoke those emotions and feelings, those very visceral responses that you talk about with your dancette in the basement, you know. Um, that stuff matters because it ultimately has a really big effect on people's behaviour and sells things. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I always think when one's meeting someone new for the first time, let's say, uh, and then you look back on that meeting two, three, four days or maybe a couple of weeks later, and you don't necessarily remember the absolute detail mm. of everything that was said, mm -hmm. but what you do remember is the impression that yeah. that person made on you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so th this is the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, really, yeah. You know, uh, so when you're watching an ad, most people aren't sort of scrutinising an ad for product claims and you know details of prices and stuff like that. They're sitting in their living room with a beer and crisps and chatting and, you know, on the sofa. Very reasonably priced. <laughs> yes. um, never and, know uh, me under salt. Never <laughs> know me under salt. And, um, and they get a vague impression of what this brand is, you know, what the, you know, what the ad is making them feel and what the stories are and the little, little bits like the music and stuff like that. And then much later on, those echoes of those feelings and impressions then will carry over onto the brand and influence people's behaviour. So, so when, when do you want those 
those impressions to echo back at them. Presumably, when when they're at a point of sale or when they're looking on the internet or you know, when, yeah, when, I mean, that, that, when is that payback? Yeah, ultimately, that, that the final payback is is when they sort of you know yeah. handing over the cash. But yeah. but the whole process of music working its magic, I guess, starts right at the beginning with getting people's attention. You know. Um, so people aren't interested in ads mostly. I mean, you know, we in advertising we like to pretend that you know that we we we're interested in ads. Normally people don't give a fuck, really, do they? I mean, they 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 just you know it's just wallpaper in the background, and then occasionally something nice comes on. You know, so for example, that is I think a nice little film, but it would be quite easy to be sitting on your very reasonably priced sofa, and not even looking at the screen but the music comes on if the music catches people's you, you can't close your ears can you and uh, music has that power to get people's attention right at the beginning I mean, you must have all had that experience you know you're where you look up you think, what, what's that you know I was um, actually had that experience with one of our, one of our own ads once a Volkswagen ad and I was walking past the living room, the TV was on in the living room, and I heard this music, and I just went, that, that's, that's really interesting, and it was actually one of our own ads. So that's the first thing, is getting people's attention. Yes. So the, so the process then of, uh, yeah, go on. Can I ask a question? Have you ever done any research on how many times <laughs> the consumer needs to hear that piece of music with that commercial to make that connection? No. <laughs> Have you? Because we, you know, we see it from our point of view. We mm. see that the music gets changed because basically the creative team are bored with music. Mm. And uh, okay. what one of the things that we say to them is that if, if the consumer hasn't needs to hear it, uh, you're bored with it because you've been listening to it five hundred times yeah. in the editing suite. But they may not even have heard it twenty times. And I just yeah. wondered where where that pivotal moment is where the consumer. Well, there is this. Uh, I, I mean, that's part of a more general problem: mm. is that people in advertising get get hold of our ideas much quicker than the public do. And our clients are in in position for much shorter time periods than they than they used to be. So if they're chopping and changing all the time, they want to make their mark with their big new campaign that is different from what has gone before. I mean, the classic story is the BBH story when they was it when they won BA and they won BA and they they stripped out. The, oh, I can't remember the name of it. The very, very famous, the Aria. The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the Lacme. Lacme, that's it. Flower duet. And um, they, they took it off, and instead they put in... What's his face? John Dever leaving on a jet plane. The guy died in a plane accident. <laughs> I mean, like, some due diligence wasn't really done there, but they, but they obviously thought, you know, leaving on a jet plane, don't know when I'll be back again. Like, is that really what you want from your BA flight? <laughs> I think not. And um, quite swiftly, they, they rolled back and they went back to what was working for them, but what was a branded asset that they built over time. And it's really interesting, like, in the behavioral sciences, we talk a lot about fluency devices. How can you make something more fluent in the mind? And it could be that you put your blue IKEA bag in your ad because that's a fluency device. Oh, it's IKEA. I know that's IKEA. Oh, I know that that's, um, that's BA because I recognize that piece of music. So you've got music. In, that, in those instances, playing a different kind of role, a brand, they are branding devices versus in these executions, although John Lewis has made a 
habit or a campaign out of this, if you like. Nonetheless, the, the music is driving the emotional storytelling. It's serving a, a slightly different purpose than just than just to be a branding device. But of course, that is important. There is a, a branding device in there, though, mm. I would say. Yeah, that, um, definitely. So with the John Lewis ads, they don't use the same song every time. But no. there's a, a stylistic consistency. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's usually a cover version of a song done in a sort of semi-acoustic, semi -acoustic kind of way, yeah. breathy, slightly gambit <laughs> way sort of thing, which gives gives you a yep. a sort of almost subliminal kind of yes. branding device. Sound and, and branding. There is actually Ruth. There, there is a hint of, of of all of this in the title of the old Grey Whistle Test, mm. because that phrase comes from the old days of, of Tim Pan Alley, where used to get the songwriting factories, in particular the Brill Building in, in New York City. And people like Neil Sedaka and Carol King would be working in the Brill Building on a nine to five, you know, sort of writing songs to order, more or less. And um, the, the people who used to work on reception or, or the guy who was the lift man or some of the cleaners or whatever, the ancillary workers uh, became known, their nickname was the Old Greys. Now, you know, it's always been said that the mark of a hit record is if you, it's the chorus, it's the hook. So if you can remember the chorus or whistle along, having just heard this particular track maybe only once, so they took the most likely songs down to a playback room at the end of each week and they invited the old greys and they, they played back some of these songs and the ones that they could hum or whistle having heard them just once, passed the old grey whistle test. And that's how those songs were then passed on to the record companies for, for, for use maybe by, by Elvis Presley or Ricky Nelson or whoever it might have been. So there, there is that thing, and I, and I can match that also with another aspect of, of the kind of work that I do. There was a, one of my favourite DJs of, of some years gone by was a guy called Roger Scott. Does anybody remember Roger yeah. Scott? Yeah. I mean, he was a consummate. He was one of the best DJs ever. And Roger used to, he, he used to have um, quite a lot of freedom with the choice of the records in his show, which are, most DJs traditionally have never had. But Roger insisted that he, he should have, because for artists like Bruce Springsteen, who he absolutely loved, he wanted to slam their latest single on his program. And you'd hear... Born to Run or whatever it was, over and over again on Roger's show in the course of a week or two weeks. Now, whenever you heard that track on somebody else's show, subsequently, it made you think of Roger because you'd heard it so many times on his program. So it's like the, the you know, the, the bag that you were saying. The, the, you know, I suppose in a way, now, I'm digressing here slightly now, but I suppose it's a bit like that with product placement, that subliminally, you know, you're, you're, you're being reintroduced to something that you kind of already know, you've heard it, it's, it's, it's got through to you, but, but there's that bag over there and you just get a glimpse of it and it reminds you. It's like hearing Bruce Springsteen on somebody else's show, it reminds you of Roger Scott. I mean, it's amazing, like if I went, it's probably a bad example, but ba 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 right? Some of you would go boots, right? If, it made, if I played it to you, you'd go boots. Uh, they're not even using it anymore, yeah. but they, they went from great big whole track in multiple, multiple, multiple ads down to YouTube where they've got three seconds to get you and they get you in that three seconds with just literally that little snippet. Um, and it's a heavily branded piece of work and you know from the off exactly where you are and who you're dealing with um, because they've built that 
relationship over time, as, as have BA. Um, but yeah, I think they've got rid of the track now, but like it's, you can do that and you can create that fluency in the mind. It's just something that I've seen before and familiar with and it's more easy to access. Because, I mean, you touched there, Tyra, on what I think has become a really sort of fascinating aspect of all of this. And that, that is that, you know, apart, apart from when we go to the cinema, obviously, and, and um, uh, actually talking of little stings, when you went to the cinema and the ads were coming on, you know, we've traditionally, obviously, we've seen our adverts on TV. Now, with, with the internet and, and with Twitter and everything else, you're getting tiny little design. They're like four seconds long or three seconds long. Or, you know, but you, you, you've got that button, haven't you, that skip the ad. So you've got three seconds and skip the ad to actually go to the YouTube film that you want to see. So to what extent now is that dictating to people, to, to advertising people, you know, is everybody front-loading to catch everybody much more quickly? How does that work? Because we've always been able to be passive with ads, haven't we? It comes up on the TV, yeah. it's an ad break, we maybe go off and watch, uh, you know, make a cup of tea. But basically, there's a two-minute ad break and you sit through it. Now it's completely different, isn't it? So, so how does that affect the thinking in terms of the construction of an ad? Well, um, again, I'm not at the, the front end of the business, but I can see what some of the things that are happening. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to at least be able to produce very short ads. So during the F Week thing, I don't know if you were there, there were people talking about the need to be able to take your ad. I mean, that's a two-minute ad we showed, which is very unusual. Two minutes. No yeah. one does two minutes. No one but John Lewis. Yeah. But, but I mean, in that campaign, it starts with the two minutes and it goes down to 60 yeah. seconds. And I think, it, they, I think they do a 30 as well. Maybe, or maybe only 60. But you also get now the pressure to do, you know, 15 seconds six seconds, yeah. you know, three seconds. And, and to be able to edit it in all these different ways. Um, and that, I mean, that kind of ad, you can't do that because the story falls apart. So storytelling has become harder to do if you want to do all that kind of, you know, blipvert types thing. Mm. And I guess it must also ha have a um, place pressure on how you use music in the ad as well. So mm. like you say, with the boots thing, you can only do the little sting mm. rather than... But they the had to build song. that. They had to build the license to be able to do yeah. that as a kind of device for them. Another yeah. problem, of course, is that um, many of the ads you'll see online, you might scroll past with the sound off. And that's, yeah. that does really quite worry me because music can be really an, an important part of the selling power. So the piece of research that we did suggested that sometimes about 20 to 30% of the sales you generate can be attributed to the choice of music. So, Use you, that in your negotiation next time. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean it, I yeah. mean, it literally means that the choice of the music track... So, I mean, think about that John Lewis thing, you know, that, that the millions of pounds of extra profit that are being generated by that, um, and about 20 to 30% of that, it comes down to the, the choice of the music track. Now, if you suddenly enter a world where the, where the music's off, that's 20 to 30% of the sales that you've lost. There used to be a thing, Graham, I'm gonna involve you here if I may, just for a moment, because I remember in the 70s when I was doing the old Grey Whistle Test, you know, one of the things 
having your music used on an ad was a very, very uncool thing. Mm, yeah. It really, really was. Because, you know, then, oh, you sold out, man. Sold out. You know. Yeah. Um, to the man. <laughs> it, 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 it was, wasn't it? And, 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 and people, it, it was even, you know, a bit in the mentality of, of you can appear on the old grey whistle test, but you can't do top of the pops. Mm, do you know yes. what I mean? It was, yeah. it was, there was that snobbery, wasn't there, about all of this kind of stuff in those days. We, we, we see a situation now that could not be more different from mm. that, don't we? Where, you know, you talk to any music publisher and they, they would die to get their mm. band on, on a John Lewis ad or on a Sting make break, uh, going into Sky News or, or yeah. the Sky Football or, or whatever. So, so as a musician who's creating this music, Graham, well, what, are, what have your thoughts been during the years as you've watched this attitude change? Well, it, it's quite important to us. I've had quite a lot of my songs or songs I've co-written in, in movies, actually, that more than advertising. Mm. And that's been really very, very useful. Um, we had, uh, I'm Not In Love was in Guardians of the Galaxy. <clears throat> a few, you know, and it was the first track that was played. And that made it art sales went up. Uh, I think it also even reflected in the ticket sales for our concerts. So it's very, very important. Yeah. But I, don't, I can't honestly think that we've ever had anything in a, uh, in a that's been used in a commercial. But I would love it. Let's talk, no. It's not, you know, as I say, not just in record sales, but in ticket sales as well. And new audiences. So you, you never felt that feeling of, no, I, you know, it's a sellout to put music into commercials? I've never really felt it, you know. It, it, if, um, you know, you're talking about the emotion of music mm. and how much it means, if it can be used in something that, that helps us, that, that I don't have any problem with it at all. Yeah. But it's, it's not, I just don't think it's selling out anymore because the, the nature of the music industry has changed so much that actually I think fans and fans respect that artists need to eat and if we're not paying through the nose for 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 albums actually anymore that's not where they're getting their bread and butter from yes they might be getting some through through spotify and all these other platforms but merchandise advertising a band has to make a living and i think people understand that and there's something something else now with that you'll know about but with with the streaming of uh, music as a songwriter I make point not not one of a penny on mm. it's, it's nothing. So uh, having a song synced either for a commercial, in a movie, mm. um, in a TV program, I've had like songs that I wrote in the sixties have just been used on something like Bus Stop uh, that the Hollies originally recorded. No Milk Today um, was used on a like a, I can't remember the name of the program, but. I see that and I go, wow, this is great. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I suppose from, from sale. The, one, the one thing about it would be, would it? I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure, but is, is there a moral issue sometimes where, where let's say, for example, that, I, I mean, I've seen, it's almost counterintuitive, where you see a very, very gentle piece of music put against violent images, particularly with, with some of the console games, mm. where, where you, you, you've got really vivid, violent images with, uh, I don't know, wouldn't it be nice yeah, playing, playing yeah. by the side of them? Now, would you want to be part of a decision-making process, Graham, that, that would stop a piece of music that, that you'd written 
however big the opportunity to, to, to play that in front of millions of people in a huge ad campaign, but it's for something that you yourself individually disagree with. I, I, would, I wouldn't allow it if mm. I had the choice to do it, yes. My moral compass would uh, affect how my music is being used and what it's being associated with. I think that's still true and fair. And mm. yeah. uh, Does that morality apply at all across Can the Can I board? please tell you Sorry. about the fact that the killers <laughs> I shall never forgive them because um, we, we we wanted a sync for Dove, for the Dove self-esteem project. For heaven's sake, like trying to help little girls with their self-esteem, it's just a fund that we used to put money into, and we had a an ad about this fund and the great work that they were doing, helping little girls with their self-esteem, and the killers would not allow us to sync um, human. Because, you know, the, the are, are we human or are we dancer? It's a beautiful mm. song, beautifully rendered. We had a, my sister, yeah, recording like this lovely acoustic version of it. It could have made my sister so much money because <laughs> um, it was going to go all over the world and the bastards wouldn't let us sink it. And, <laughs> and my, my creative director, he, like, we all loved this track, absolutely loved it. They would not let us do it. Even for Dove, which, you know, has a really big reputation in terms of, um, giving back to society and being a, a brand with some integrity, they just wouldn't let us. And we had to use something that was just nowhere near as good, in fact. It was a tragedy. It was a family tragedy. It was a tragedy for Dove. Yeah. Um, I'll yeah. never forgive them. But I mean, there, there, there must be elements, I mean, for everyone in, in the room uh, that's involved in the process of matching music with film, of frustration at certain times that, you know, I, I am stepping into this world from the outside. The world of music supervision is a new world to me. I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. For me, where, where I connect, obviously, is the meeting of, if you like, the visual expression of the sound or the other way around. The way, the way that these two work together can be a very, very powerful combination. It, 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 there's no doubt about that. But my impression is, Ruth touched on it, actually, when, when she was talking, and I'm sure other people in the room must have a similar experience of, you know, you've, you've got great ideas in your mind and you can begin to visualise how this particular piece of music or whatever might work, but suddenly everything's happening absolutely at the last minute. Mm. You've got lots and lots and lots of different voices mm. that are bringing in lots of different and, and contradictory ideas so that in the end, what you end up with is a kind of compromise that isn't really satisfying for anybody. That kind of stuff happens. Or sound-alikes. I, I, again, like my, I can't remember what this phrase is, passing off, that's it, isn't it? Passing off. And like my, my dad would have been like, somebody's passing off our music, would have hit the, hit the roof. Um, and yeah, I've seen there was a particular Andrex advert that really annoyed me because um, they were clearly passing off like this track as if it was this you know very very famous uh, original track. They they'd done it beautifully, but it was a complete rip off. And I thought that's disgraceful in terms of the um, you know the, the the artists should be getting paid for that and they're not. And so I think that does happen a lot. What you mean actually, sort of like a, a, a sound alike. Yeah, no. and you only you have, have to alter it about two or three um, notes, yeah. don't you? Know, and then four notes they, yeah. or they did that is. with the Radio 2 just, jingle package. I don't like that recently. at all. I think that's <laughs> because you're trading on somebody else's brand and, and what they've invested in getting that track known and recognised. That's what you're trading off, and it's, yeah. just, it's wrong, yeah. really. So there is a moral question because it's always at the end. And um, oh, we really want to get this queen or whatever it was, but actually we don't have the money for that, so we're going to 
pay somebody to mix this up for us and have something vaguely similar. Which yeah. I think is no, they did. Paul Sexton is here, and of course, Paul sat in on my my country show uh, for fourteen weeks when I when I was off poorly, and um, I think it was twenty thirteen. I think it was Paul, wasn't it? The, 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 the Radio 2 jingles package had been created by Jams in Chicago, I think there was, and uh, it was BBC Radio 2, and it, they redid the package and then realised that it was going to cost a fortune to just continue to run with it. So they took it out to Wise Buddha, I think, the, the advertising, uh, the um, uh, production company, who just altered it slightly, the emphasis of it, just to make the scanning slightly different, enough to separate the two, and they're able to say now to Jams, right, right, we won't be using you anymore. We're going to use what effectively became in-house, pretty much, at, at a much, 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 much reduced cost. I know it's different, but it's sort of the same only different, isn't yeah. it, really, if, if, if you're looking at it that way. Yeah. So if I may, for, for me, sort of as I, as I learn about things as I go along here, and throwing this out to the room, the, the, the process then, okay, it's like Alton John and Bernie talking. Okay, Alton would give the, the lyrics to Bernie. Was it that way? Yeah, other way Bernie around. Bernie would the other way around. <laughs> it was Gary Osborne. It would, Alton would give the lyrics to Gary Osborne, and then he and he wrote Blue Eyes, which which was uh, used in a very <laughs> successful, I think it was perfume campaign. I can't remember now, but anyway, anyway, that, that being so, there's the music coming first, or the lyrics coming first. At some stage, the two come together. So you've got the the visual aspect of an ad, and then you've got the sound aspects of an ad and the sound doesn't always just have to be music does it there's a soundtrack there's the voiceover there's 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 the patter of feet as you see people running there now to what extent are all these things brought together in consideration of each other and in what order does that happen does it change with every ad or or it is different with every ad yeah. um, unless you've got a if you've got a sort of formula as John Lewis now have um, I suspect there's, there's much more front-loading on the emphasis of what, what is that piece of music going to be. But nonetheless, you're still fitting to story. They will start with the concept, the concept of the ad, and then they'll be looking at... And to be honest, music, the, the reason that music comes last, almost universally music comes right at the very end of the process, is because it's much easier for us to talk about the visual and whether the salt is on the left or the right of the screen and the end line and the language and the message and the words that we're going to use. And we place so much over-importance on those particular words um, and that particular order of things because those are the things that we can talk about with our client. It's all yes. very rational mm. yeah. and it's right there in front of us. Whereas how the music makes us feel is so much more difficult to explain, to, um, mm. to discuss. And, and, and anyway, Les, in, on, on this point, does it matter? I mean, the reason I say that is yeah. that, okay, so when I'm putting a, a radio program together, mm. I'm looking, I'm taking a sort of holistic look at an hour, let's say, and I, I'm building the program based on some of my own sort of instinctive thoughts about the way that this hour is going to open out. So starting with something I was taught at the BBC when I first started, my, my first producer, Jeff Griffin, always said to me, start the hour with something bright and familiar, mm. you know, because then you're <laughs> going to draw them in. And uh, I, I still, to this day with country, the opening two records are a come on in. Mm. They've yeah. got to come yeah. on in. The doors are open welcome message to them. So then as I go through that hour and I'm putting segues together, I am looking at storylines within songs mm -hmm. to see this particular song here, it ends on piano, 
if I start the next song that begins on piano and I can somehow link the, the storylines within the lyrics of that song, that is, you know, and, and almost make the segue kind of invisible. That's a real, it's a skill, which mm. I'm proud of, mm. that, that I, I know that's what it is. But I also think to myself, people who are listening, I wonder how many of them recognize yeah. that this moment has taken place. Mm. Now, now, you're in a position to be able to analyze those kind of moments more, aren't you? So, so, so once you begin to, to chisel away at the layers of all of this, Les, and, and go down a bit deeper into, so how do they react to these ads? What, what conclusions do you reach about how deeply people are prepared to analyze all these things? I don't think we, we totally understand all this stuff, or at least I don't, but I think we know some of the things that are going on. So as I said, music gets people to pay attention. And in particular, actually, music can get particular people to pay attention, because of course, you know, for instance, if you want to target people of a particular age group, you can use music to sort of zoom in on those people. You know, that's the music of my youth or whatever, you know. So there's the, there's the attention, selective attention. Attention within the ad itself. There's a remarkable thing that if you play the same ad with different music, you will see different things. Um, I've, I've experienced this. So we did uh, an experiment with um, a psychologist from Goldsmiths um, who's going to be on one of these talks in a few weeks' time. And we had the same ad with two very similar pieces of music. Um, it was a, a montage ad for Tropicana Orange Juice with a whole load of different scenes in New York of people having breakfast. And one track was um, How Do You Like Your Eggs in the Morning, upbeat. Yes, yes, yes. And the other one was uh, Dean Martin... Besame Mucho. So I think both of them got Dean Martin on, but one up, upbeat, one sort of rather slow and sad. And you saw different scenes when you saw the, the, the two ads. You know, the downbeat one, you'd see people looking tired and rubbing their eyes. The upbeat one, people would be striding out to work. And so you notice different things. So you get attention to the ad, you get attention within the ad. There's the emotional colouring, the Hollywood sort of, you know, effect. There's Music can carry the story along, you know. You can interpret the feelings of the characters much more easily if you've got music giving you cues. And then it affects the way you remember the ad as well. Music affects different parts of your memory. I mean, the whole thing, the film at the beginning, the, 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 you know, mu music lights up different bits of the brain and it affects how you remember the ad later on. So it, there's a whole load of different buttons that you're pressing with music. Because one of the fascinating things about this, it seems to me, is rhythm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, has anybody seen the film Baby Driver? Yes. Yeah. What an amazing film that is. You know, Simon Mayo first told me about it. He said, you'll love this film because the, the soundtrack is so terrific. But the thing about Baby Driver is the rhythm, particularly the opening sequence where he's doing everything in the rhythm of the music and it's carried along. Now, again, when, when, when you see that and you know you're seeing it, which it's very obvious they're saying to, look, this is what we've done. Uh, you are watching the rhythm of the music dictating the pace of, of the visual that you're, you're watching. It, it's not subtle, and yet it is. I mean, it, it, it's really quite an amazing combination. Is that, again, the, the, that sort of 
aspect is that a factor when synchronicity i mean so, yeah. it's called sync right yeah. if it's not synchronized if it's even just slightly out even with footsteps the brain knows it, you know so going into rhythm it. with the music and all that sort of stuff that's why you need it's good you need that perfect synchronicity that it feels you you feel it you feel lifted or low in step with exactly what's happening on screen and the music needs to drive that it can drive that um but equally it can it can it can fight against it or it can provide a lot of um, kind of discongruency, like exactly as you were saying with the shoot 'em up kind of games, but with this big, lovely piece of classical music and you're going, what's going on here? This yes. doesn't make any sense. And, and that makes sense in and of itself. Like the, um, the reason we love covers so much in, in advertising is because you've got a little bit of a rub there. You've got, I know this song. I know this song. What is this song? I, this is, I've not heard it like this before. Um, and then you add in, oh, I tell you what, we're actually going to get someone to cover this song that is from our audience's youth. I've, we've, I've done that a couple of times, I think, in, in uh, ad campaigns. And um, they, they just love it. They love the song because they know the song. It's really familiar. But there's something new and novel and, wow, stand out, exciting, interesting about it. Actually, that's such a great point, Ty, I think, because, you know, one of my good friends is Bernie Marsden. Now, Bernie used to be in Whitesnake. Uh, years ago, and of course, White Snake had massive hits across the American charts through the eighties. And um, of course, he, as co-writer of, of things like "Is This Love," and has been talking to music publishers about on this very topic. And he said that, that the theory of say using "Is This Love," uh, you've got a, a, a car and somebody switches the radio on, and there's "Is This Love" playing that that song will immediately resonate with the generation yeah, yes. who that heard it yeah. when it was fresh. Yeah. So if that's the generation you're targeting with the product, yeah. then you've got them straight away because, oh, it's Whitesnake, it's this love. Yeah. And so Whitesnake became, became a really successful brand in their own right later, mm. like 20 years later, because the Whitesnake generation now had um, disposable income. Yeah. And, and the ad people were choosing White Snake songs to get them involved in that particular product because they knew that they connected with the song. I mean, it's, you know, mm. all of this implies, doesn't it? It doesn't just imply, I mean, to my mind, it actually demonstrates that all this is an art form. It is, to your point, it's, it's, the, it's a commercial art form. I mean, that's, yeah. why I, that's why I love my job so much, actually. The truth of it is that it is applying art and creativity to to real world business problems and and stuff that we kind of want to try and fix and, and make money for our clients and do a good job in that way can i tell you a, a nice example of that music targeting thing from a few years ago this is quite a long time ago early 90s i think um, we were working for a little insurance company and this insurance company was not very well known quite small but it had this advantage that it had a lot of really old, careful drivers who were very low risk. And they wanted to recruit more boring old farts, basically. <laughs> so, so they wanted to expand the business, but they didn't want to get lots of boy racers in who would ruin their risk profile. So what they did was they did uh, two or three TV ads, which were aimed at older people, and they used music to do the targeting. So they chose songs from the 60s and 70s, that would basically mm. get those old farts yeah. you know, mm. and turn off uh, the younger viewers. So I, I can't remember what the song, one, one of the songs was, was The New Seekers, and I, oh, I can't remember the, I, I could sing it, but I won't do that. Um, hmm? 
No, not that oh. one. Uh, some, That's Coca-Cola. That, that was, that was uh, Coca-Cola. That was written uh, by an advertiser. Never be another you or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> so the, 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 the scene in the ad is, it's 1967, a young couple, a man um, driving the car, he has a little accident, the claim's sorted out, and then it cuts to, these are real stories of real customers, and then it cuts to them in their 70s or 80s or whatever, and they're still with the same insurance company, and they had a song from that year. Um, and it was tremendously successful because we showed this ad to young, young, young drivers, and they were going, you know, this is bloody awful, you know. It's like, you know. And so they didn't, they didn't ring up, but the, but the old farts did ring up, and we got lots more old farts and, um, and got low-risk drivers, and they made lots of money out of it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually a very selective yeah. form of targeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, go on, Kerry, because I, I was just about to, to say to both of you, actually, because... Sound Lounge, it, it, under, the, under the heading then, ads as art form, this is a Sound Lounge idea too, isn't it? That, that, that's how you see things. Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to say to Lens, um, how would you begin within an agency, begin to <laughs> the importance of sound a lot earlier mm. in the strategy rather than it being an artist? Mm. Mm. And especially when you talk about short-termism and long-termism mm. and the effectiveness that that has. I think, um, again, I keep coming to the fact that I, I know remarkably little about how ads are made, given that I've been doing it for 32 years. But I think different people work in different ways. So one of our really great creatives, you know, the, the John Webster, who was, you know, one of the geniuses of advertising and was our head creative guy for a long, long time in the 70s and 80s and 90s. He did start a lot of the time with music. He often had, he had, he had drawers full of cassettes, I'm told, you know, with, you know, this is, one day I'll find a, a, yeah. a home for this. He did the famous, um, the Kiora uh, orange one, you know, Kiora, which was in cinemas for a very long time. So he did often start with the music, but then some people worked the other way. So when Daniel Mullensee from neuroscientist guy I was talking about came into our agency to get an induction on how ads are made. They spent an entire day telling people about the, the advertising process and he said literally in the last 30 seconds of the day they said oh and then you put some music on it. And it might not even be the agency, it might be the director, you know it's not even the agency itself that's putting the music to picture. But I'll tell you another thing which is I think um, one way of thinking about this is let's turn it all on its head and let's really acknowledge the emotional power of music and make that more central to the planning process. But I think some creators might not welcome that. Oh, no, they, they yeah. absolutely wouldn't. No because, creators don't welcome anything. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I said earlier on that it's like um, advertising, we talk about advertising as being communication, about getting your message across and key propositions and all that stuff. And to some extent, for some advertising, that's a red herring, you know. and. Possibly, there are people in the advertising industry who are comfortable with that. It's like, okay, we can talk to the client about the proposition and the, you know, the key messages and all that sort of stuff and all that other thing over there, and the client can tinker around with that. And meanwhile, we'll do the important stuff, which is the music and the casting and the lighting and all that other stuff that yes. where the magic really happens. But we're not going to talk about that because otherwise they'll fiddle with it. Mm. Yes. 
And we leave it really late in the day so they can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. But I do, I, I, we talked about this last, when we got together, and I, I think, honestly, I think there's a role for benchmarking. And if we were to be more public with how much money is exchanging hands for music, for really great pieces of advertising, then I think that would help our clients uh, and also within the process, our account managers budget accordingly and go, right, well, if our competitor is spending that much money on music, maybe we should be spending something in the same ballpark as well. Um, or if, if this is the kind of ad that we want, ultimately, what's our, you know, <laughs> again, where can we budget right, right up front? And what sort of budgets are you talking about there? It's a piece of string. Is it? Yeah. Well, we've got huge benchmarks mm. in our business because we've been working direct brand for 15 years now. Mm. And so with all of that stuff, right, that we've been creating for clients, not just here in the UK, but also around the world, mm. we have all the benchmarks around music and the different kind of levels. Um, you have them, but are they public? We, they're not public. I would like them to be public. Um, however, we found uh, probably that lots of our clients are pushing the music agenda more than their agents. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, so we find a lot of pushback from the agents. We want to make music an integral part of the discussion at the beginning of the project. Mm. So what you're saying is that the clients want to pay for it, yes. but the agencies the, don't. The clients want to have a discussion about music strategy mm. at the beginning Audio of the show. Yeah, mm. audio branding. Uh, the, the agencies push back. So that's our experience. <laughs> okay. Because agencies are run by egotistical creatives who just want to be given free reign and no one to like play with any of their toys mm. and say, no, you really must play with this toy this time because actually this toy is going to give you the most fun. They're like, no, fuck that. I want to play with these <laughs> toys and I want all of the toys. And so um, I think like the, the, the biggest problem is uh, the ego in our industry generally, and that, that's the thing that gets in the way of ha having grown up conversations about sound branding. Can I ask a question about new music? And I just want, I'd be interested in your opinion on the role of new music in commercials because mm. we've been talking about familiar tracks mm. and, and touching nerves and, 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 and mm. bringing back emotion and what have you. One of the conversations clients are increasingly having with us are, is about new music, mm -hmm. composing music mm -hmm. and developing an income mm. stream from mm. that music. And I just wondered what your view on that was, and whether that was pushing water uphill, really. Because none of the, the, the deep-seated emotional triggers that you talked about mm. can, can, be, can be there in that kind of music, unless you spend a ton on media. Well, I mean, what matters well, is, is that it's good music, yeah. isn't it? I mean, so um, I can think immediately of a, of, a, of a couple of ads which where the music really uh, you know, hit me in a yeah. kind of like, mm. oh, that's interesting, and I'd never heard the tracks yeah. before. So. Familiar music is one way to make music work, but that's not the only way at all. And um, advertisers love new music if it's new sound. Yeah. If, the, if, oh my yeah. God, I've never heard anything yeah. like, yeah. like yeah. that phrase, that phase where everyone wanted ukulele because um, ukulele was so new and cool and like no one had heard anything. Um, like, and now everyone wants whatever yeah. jazzy, boppy stuff, like just sounds really weird because distinctiveness in market. It, it, it depends what emotions you're trying to mm. evoke and who you're talking to and what you're trying to do with the ad. The most successful brands Levi. Mm, yes, exactly. Yeah. When I was growing up, it was all about what the Levi trap would be. Mm. Flat Eric. Yeah. You actually looked out for it, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Again, it was sort of the formula that they were, and their their branding mm. was was around that new music. So. I mean, you might want to want to music that deliberately sounded strange and kind of like you yeah. know. Yeah. 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 
We have somebody in the room from one of the top music publishing companies, Peer Music. Dylan is here. You just had your hand up, Dylan. Yeah, it's kind of, you've semi-answered it, but I was going to say how much your advert's kind of self-aware of trends. Obviously, trends is a massive buzzword these days. And so the example we spoke about when we all met up a few weeks ago, but post-Bohemian Rhapsody, I think there were five different major ads that all used a Queen track. Obviously, that was a trend. People jumped on it. I think that's not too creative, but kind of what you were saying in terms of you used a ukulele and then that went cold again in terms of trends. Mm. How much are you guys in your roles assessing what music is popular, but also being very aware that trends have very short shelf lives mm. these days? So are you more looking to try and throw curveballs or are you looking to get on something that you think is going to be a trend before it is, or are they, is the trend kind of dictating the music? I mean, get, that comes that back to our egotistical creative friends um, who uh, <laughs> know the future and create the future. And I mean, again, this is the, the, the I, I joke, but like, you know, they are my best friends, my creatives, and um, they have the power to create culture. Um, I think advertising does do that, as evidenced by the fact that I, everyone knows what I'm saying when I say simples. I mean, it's just culture, it's not, um, and I think creatives can pick up on something that has potential, just like any great music producer or DJ that goes, this has got a hook, I like, this is, this is going to be something, and I can make it that, I can give it a platform. And I think our creative directors are very um, similar in that respect, but they are looking for, you know, will it work for the brand and will it work for the ad and the story and the message and getting what we want out of it. Um, but I, I, I don't think, like I say, they just want every tool in the box to play with. So whilst music is a really, really powerful one and it doesn't get the light shone on it enough and it doesn't get the budgets it deserves, it is only one way of approaching it. And I think creatives are loathe to be told what to do. <laughs> it's, very, it's very hard to generalise. <laughs> yeah, say, exactly. You know, um, shit advertising is copying other people's mm. stuff, isn't it? No, nobody wants to be following a trend within advertising. Mm. Um, no, the minute, um, it's, the minute everyone's doing it, done. I mean, and you do see it, but, but you know, what you, as, as somebody working in an advertising agency, you want to be leading the trend within your business. Um, but I'm sure, you know, creative people would love, if they see a bubbling up trend within music, to be the first one in advertising to, to pick up on it. So, so distinguish between trends in music and trends in advertising. Mm. Um. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, Interesting. I think that's partly a comic. When you get paid, when you get paid for the thirty seconds, and partly a sense of urgency. Now, listening to this fascinating conversation you were having, and hearing Bob talk about urgency and Tara laugh that you know who does a commercial last more than two minutes. Mm. It's the same chicken and egg question. Do you think that the way the music's been created today, driving urgency in advertising? I, I'd actually say neither, mm. um, um, but they're both responding to a third thing, mm. which is that um, the economics of attention mm. is very similar for, say, Spotify or a YouTube ad. You're in a world where people can drift off very, very quickly. They, you know, you want to hook them in really, really early because 
it's so easy for them to flick to the next thing. So in the days of Dan sets in the cellar, you know, you put the needle on the record and you're going to let it play to the end. You know, you, you, we didn't... The mechanics of taking records on and off the turntable meant that you, you just didn't flick from one track, you know. Yeah. There was no fast-forward button, was there, you know, on, a, on, a, on an LP? Um, whereas now... You know, you can be listening to something on Spotify. If it's not interesting, you can immediately flick to something else and you've got millions of titles. You're watching a YouTube ad, you know, you can immediately, you can skip within three seconds. So it's, it's that kind of skippability that's driving both of them. The other thing about that, um, I mean, this is a slight digression, I know, but in terms of things becoming gradually more homogenized, that skippability that you, you just mentioned there, Les, it, it's happening now with music genres, I think, and mm. the, the, the definition line between music genres is gradually getting more and more blurred. I mean, I do The Country Show on Radio 2. I suspect that probably in 10 or 15 years' time, apart from, from retro people, you know, the next generation will not recognize the difference between country, pop, blues, that they're all beginning to get because the shuffle generation, the skip generation, mm. if you like, that next track that's coming at them is just that next track. Mm. And, and w whether it's Fleetwood Mac or whether it's The Shires or whether it's you know, hip hop or whatever it is, it's just the next track and they're taking each individual track mm. on its own individual merits. Mm. And it was interesting, when we brought Whistle Test back a couple of years ago, you know, there was that one night only show that we did. And it was quite a reaction uh, to the show on, on <laughs> Instagram and on Twitter in particular. And I remember we were driving back from London after the show. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, the after party and everything else. And, and we, we had Beth Nelson Chapman in the car with, her, with us. And she was going through uh, Twitter and the social media reaction to the show. And she was going, oh, this is great. Look, they're saying all these great things about the show. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then she started going, oh. And what had happened was that, that the, the punk generation... Who sort of hated whistle test, you know, uh, almost to a person, had had realised that the show was going out and began to chip in their thoughts as to me and the show. And <laughs> it was personal beyond belief, you know. Um, and I mean, Dylan, we were at, we were analysing this when we got home, and Miles and Dylan and Flo all said that they could not believe that music was so tribal in those right, days. Okay. The music doesn't have that tribal thing going on to it anymore. Yeah, well, that was, yeah. That, yeah. You, that you can use any kind of music across much wider uh, canvases than, than you were able I, to I do was, there. I mean, I don't know, but I, I sort of suspect that the, young, the, the younger generation, you know, um, um, that there's, there is a generation that doesn't have all the kind of baggage that we had. So, you know, it, music was very tribal. You know, you, you, you liked certain things and you weren't allowed to, to like other things. Um, and you knew a lot about the bands and what they looked like and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's possible for people to listen to music on Spotify and actually know very little about them. So, so for example, my, my daughter is 12 and she listens to stuff. And I say, oh, it's, you know, what's this singer? You know, where, where does she come from? And you go, I don't know. She doesn't know anything about these people, just knows she likes this song and... Mm. Will. Yeah, just, just very quickly, <laughs> uh, to your inspirational remarks about each other, which is the other thing that you're seeing, again, with the hits and Spotify, is mm. collaborations. Mm. 
Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and again, you see that in the world of video. I know it, in, in YouTube they talk about collabs, don't they? You know, and, it, and it's a sort of cross-selling exercise, isn't mm. it? You know, yeah. you, oh, you, you give me some of your fans, and I'll give you some of mine. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. curious. Um, Tom. <laughs> That's uh, wow. That's that's really. Um, I mean, I, you know, when I moved to London in 1966, London was was kind of becoming absolutely consumed by or at least my London. You know, the London that I came into was all about the counterculture. It was all about new magazines and new music and Pink Floyd and and happenings and and uh, you know, we felt to ourselves that we were creating something genuinely new, which actually I think our generation at that moment was. And they, they, I mean, we're digressing now, we really are, but there was, a, there, was, there was a fantastic optimism in the air in those days. And you were encouraged to think individualistically, uh, but as part of a, uh, um, um, a collective, if, if that isn't a contradiction. I don't think it is actually, because with that op optimism, you each, person seemed to have a, uh, a, a great ambition and you felt to yourself that with the help of others you could realize that ambition so there, there was a, a whole movement of people that seemed to be doing this with everything and it wasn't just music although music was a very very important part of it but it was to do with fashion you know Mary Quant Jean Shrimpton Twiggy it was to do with films you know films like you know blow up and, and there was a, there was a culture an image of the culture in those days, which was genuinely really, really exciting. I do think that, that things have become blander. They've, they've just kind of, we've, where we've not gone bland is on violence. Violence has become much more graphic. But, you know, a lot of other things in life have, have gone blander. And I, I, it, it, I do think it's extraordinary that in this day and age, where are the protest singers? Yeah, I was going to say, you know I mean? it just made me think. Like, it's, it's really, really extraordinary. It's really surprising that, particularly in the Brexit debate, that the, the both no, sides haven't taken the song. And, and obviously, you know, you've got people like Billy Bragg and who've been around for a long time that are still actively making comment on what's going on around them. But, the, but that number, when you think how great things were in the 60s, and there was this massive uprising with the protest singer uh, taking shots at everything, and now when things, when the world is, is in the chaos it's in, it's yeah. extraordinary that we don't have More, writers yeah. who are stridently making comments about what's going on around I us. Guess, I guess environmental stuff is one area where, because where young people are very, very strongly engaged. I, th I, I, I think there's a danger here. We talk, we, we lapse into a kind of like, the world's not like it was well, when I know, were alive. I know, I know. Um, but, you know, um, uh, it, but, but maybe that emotional commitment is just not coming out, is coming out in a different place. I mean, I, about that, Les, you know, I, I do think, Ruth's given us a, a wind up, we, we're going to have to uh, draw this to a close in a second, but, you know, 
I th there, there was something very magical in the 60s, if you like. You know, those old record shops like Musicland and Merrick Street that I always used to go to, they had the booths and you'd go in there for an afternoon, everybody was hanging out. As a DJ on the radio, as I started on the radio and started playing music that people hadn't heard before, mm. how did they get hold of that album from which I just played that track? Mm. Well, they would write to me. Um, it, it, the, the letter would hopefully come to me through the BBC system. I, I'd read it. I'd, I'd handwrite a letter back, which they'd receive maybe 10 days or two weeks later. They'd take this letter with the information it contained to their local record shop. I mean, I used to do this myself. Mm. Yeah. I asked the person on the counter, could they order this record for me, please? Uh, they would reach out to America, no doubt, mm. to get an import in, which in itself would probably take about 10 days. Yeah. They would then let you know, phone you or write to you to tell you that this album has now arrived. You went down to the record shop and collected it and you took it home, probably showing it under showing your arm, yeah. as, you know, as visibly as you could so that yeah. people could do. Uh, and then you take it out and you put it on the record player and then you put the needle on that record. And the whole ritual of that and the sense yeah. of anticipation was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Certainly that, that's how I felt. Now, that's a process and that's brilliant. But, okay, fast forward to my show this Thursday, let's say, and I'm playing a track by somebody that nobody's ever heard before. They can be listening to my, the track. They, before I've even announced it, they can Shazam it. They can put that into iTunes or whatever download system they use. And by the time I've finished that, playing that track on the radio, it can be in their collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's a revolution. It's yeah. a revolution. Having this, because you know, having that record shop of millions and millions of tracks mm. on your PC or, or on your Mac, Mm. And, and so it's unbelievable. The opportunities there are incredible. So the counter to what we were saying just now, you know, yes, you know, people will skip from one track to the other if it's shit, and people will skip to one ad to, to, you know, to the next thing if it's shit. But when people find something that they do love, they can very quickly go deeply mm. into it. Mm. And so, so counter to this, again, I, I tend to use my daughter as the... She's the only consumer <laughs> under 70 that I know. Um, but we've just come back from holiday. When we were on holiday, I was playing um, some songs by Narina Palo, who I adore. And she said, oh, Narina Palo, not, not a bad choice for once, Dad. And I realised, I, uh, you know, that she knew an immense number of Narina Palo songs. And Narina Palo was, you know, and many of these songs were written, you know, like... Um, Ten years, Ten before, years she, before she was born. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and, uh, and she discovered Marina Palo based on one song and then had gone on Spotify, well, mm. Apple Music, and gone on Apple Music and then yeah. just gone through the catalogue and, and, and knew all these songs. And I, Now, when I was 12, I would, I would have had to scrape together the pocket money to buy one single. Or yes. She could just do it all and she yes. discovered something that she loved. Yeah. So... There is the, the, the flip side to this, and we see this also with ads. So, um, cunningly bringing it back to advertising. Um, um, you know, uh, YouTube did this analysis of what they believe to be the most effective YouTube ads mm. of all time. And the average length of those ads was one minute and 41 seconds. Okay? So, it's not true that it's just short ads that work. No. When you get ads like, oh, rather yeah. the ads for John Lewis, um, um, uh, then 
people will, if you get to a certain level of, a, of attention and creativity and mm. liking, people will watch them for two minutes, as you all did, um, and then they'll watch them again, mm. and then they'll show them to their friends. So our culture is both becoming kind of more shallow and deeper yeah. at the same time, I'd say. That's a really fantastic way to conclude our conversation actually i love that les thank you very much tara and les everybody and thanks <laughs> i'm not absolutely uh, certain how to exactly conclude this other than to say i mean i've loved this I've, I've, I've loved the experience this has been a huge learning experience for me tonight and we will continue these conversations through the winter with we're having a session every month, aren't we, between now and I think right through to next May or June. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait. I, I'm, I'm really, thank you so much for being here and, and uh, sharing your knowledge too, actually, the, the, everyone who's, who's contributed. It's been a wonderful, wonderful evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Before we finish, I'd just like to say, you know, you, you didn't ask me about my early music. No, I didn't. I'm listening to you and watching yeah. you. And, oh. and it's fabulous to have two of my musical heroes in the room. Oh. Yeah. oh, thank you, Les. That's lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. If you want to find out more about the event series, go to www.aneveningwithbob.com where you'll also find videos of the event highlights and interviews with Bob, Ruth and all the other guests. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to james at soundlounge.co.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. See you next time. Sound Lounge.